follow in the footsteps of David. We're going to kind of break up a little bit um, before we get into because we hand it out tonight or for next week. Um, we're going to go into a passage of scripture and look at a situation that happened in David's life and watch how he manages this. Watch what he uses of the truths of the word and try to absorb this as a model of how a king should operate. Because what we're going to find is the other kings don't operate this way. So this is the Davidic model now, the messianic leadership model. Um, before we go any further, the fourth page on your notes tonight is really not part of the notes. It should be uh, a, a um, copy of the uh, overhead transparency. Finally, I'm starting to learn how to use the computer a little bit better. So we'll get these slides. I can see that didn't come out very well. Um, anyway, you can tell from the sheet that you have um, in your notes. That's that basic slide, which I guess when the people made it, reproduced it, they did not reproduce it very well. Okay. Um, this is the primary slide that we're going to use to replace that other one, ex nihilo creator, that sort of thing. This summarizes it. Um, and for, as I develop these um, overheads, I'll give you them as a page in the notes so you can look at them up close. We'll get to this. We'll go back to this slide a little bit tonight. We want to start then by turning to a psalm of David that records this event. And if you turn in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, Psalm 57. David was one of the great believers of both Old and New Testaments. And he is often looked down upon as unspiritual because of various things that happened in his life. But God's still, God's evaluation, whether it's man's or not, it's another story, but God's evaluation is that he is a man who wholly followed after the Lord. And so this causes a lot of heartache and problems with folks, but that's the evaluation of Scripture. So if Scripture is our criterion, then we go with the Scripture. But in this psalm, we have a situation that happened earlier on in his life. And I think we've given you enough background of history so that as we get into the psalm and watch it, you can pick up on things that you would not have picked up on had you not come on Thursday nights. Um, we're going to look first at the psalm itself, the title, because in the Hebrew... The thing to remember is that verse 1 is that title. So if you looked in a Hebrew text and you had that sitting in your lap tonight, Psalm 51.1 reads, for the choir director. Even though the English translation, verse 1, starts out, be gracious to me, O God. In the Hebrew, be gracious to me, O God, is verse 2. The titles are considered part of the scripture in the Hebrew. So um, we take these titles seriously. Uh, not often do the titles tell us a lot about the psalm, but they tell us uh, enough to, well, the Holy Spirit <laughs> logged enough in those headings, usually to set us up with some of, some of the content. 
Now, what we want to look at in this in the title is this, after it says for the choir director, it said, uh, in my uh, translation, it's Al Tushketh. And it, whenever you see something like that, that Tashketh, you know that the translators didn't know what to do with it. Because <laughs> if they knew what to do with it, they would have translated it. All they did is they alliterated. They took it and made one-to-one -one correspondence between the sound and the Hebrew and English language. So in the Hebrew, if you read the Hebrew, it says Al-Tishkef. So an Al-Tishkef doesn't translate anything. It just puts it there. Uh, they've done that everywhere this occurs. If you look at Psalm 58... Al-Teshkef. Uh, if you look at Psalm 59, it says Al-Teshkef. If we went over to Psalm 75, you'd see it Al-Teshkef. So what does Al-Teshkef mean? This is a Hebrew um, verb, and Al uh, looks like this in the Hebrew, and it's Hebrew reads from right to left, and Teshkef is, is a prefix. So this is a prefix to the Hebrew verb, and it's a negation. And it's a particular kind of negation. It says, don't do this. So teshkes means to destroy. So the title here in Hebrew means, don't destroy. And, and the reason the translators haven't translated is because it doesn't really make a nice title. I mean, for the choir director... Don't destroy. I mean, is he telling the choir, don't destroy the psalm? What, what is going on here? Now, we have to decide why is this in the title. And actually, most people who have looked at this psalm feel that Al-Teshkaf is sort of a code put into Psalm 57, 58, and 59 to describe a period in David's life when he had the choice to destroy... Saul. Psalm 57 tonight was going to be a snapshot of a, an event that probably didn't last more than 30 minutes in David's life, but had very strong repercussions in how he ascended the throne. Now, let's review a few things about David. You remember back when we uh, dealt with David, we said that David is a model of messianic leadership. And remember that he came after Saul. So we have Saul, then we have David, and before we had Saul, did we have any kings? And the answer is no. Were there any kings in Moses' day? No. Were there any kings in Joshua's day? No. Why did they have a king? Remember what happened? Why was the institution of the monarchy begun? It was the people that cried out to solve a problem in their community and their politics. What was the problem they had? The problem they had that the society was disintegrating into chaos. Remember, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that was an internal problem. What they sought was an external solution. That was the problem spiritually, and they tried to solve it with a human solution. And so they demanded, they just didn't ask, they actually demanded that God give them a king. And how did they qualify it when they asked? Remember? God, give us a king like all the other nations. Now, what a stupid request. 
What was the whole purpose of Israel in history? To be like the other nations? To be different. They were called to a different drummer. That was, they were to march to a different drummer. They were called to a different calling. And yet, in faced with this, that's why the, New Te- the Old Testament is so good, because it just pictures us the way we are. And we get uncomfortable with sanctification. We want kind of to have one foot in the world, and that's what they wanted. They wanted a king like all the other nations. Remember what happened is God said, you're not going to get a king like all nations. I'll consent to giving you a king. And he gave him this guy out of the tribe of Benjamin. And you remember that he let David, uh, let Saul monarchy, that dynasty, be a conditional dynasty. Remember that? It was conditioned on whether or not Saul would obey the Lord. So Saul was given a promise, but it was conditional. Sort of like the Sinaitic covenant is a conditional covenant. And we all know Saul disintegrated and and, uh, got out of it, rebelled against the Lord. Very proud man, uh, nothing immoral in his life, uh, lived what would be a respectable life in the community, uh, but he had a problem. And it was right from the very beginning. It's like he was half ashamed to be identified with the Lord. And when the pressure came on him, he immediately reverted to human solutions. Couldn't get his eyes on the Lord. So always Saul, Saul, Saul. What are people going to think of Saul? And never, what does the Lord think of Saul? So finally, you remember that Saul was replaced in God's economy by David of the tribe of Judah. And David eventually, not at the point in Psalm 57, but eventually he would be given an unconditional promise. That is, the Davidic dynasty would go on forever and ever. So David becomes a model. God often works that way. He gives us what we think is an answer to our prayers for us to play with it for a while then get dissatisfied with it, so we'll really get down to business and look to him to solve the real problem. So God gave them a king, the one that they, you know, the one that sort of was like what they wanted. It's failed, it started to fall apart, and David was the replacement. Now, when we went through that point of history, I made a point of contrasting David's behavior with the contemporary ancient Near Eastern kings. Remember we we went in, I gave you some quotes from Sennacherib, gave you some quotes about how these kings dealt with political problems. Now, what was David's political problem? Let's think about it for a minute. He's called to be king. What's the problem? What age was he when he was called to be king? He was a late teen. And it's a little arrogant to be late teen. And here's Saul, old enough to be his father, who's sitting on the throne. So we've got a little problem. I'm called to be king, but somebody else is sitting on the throne. So we are going to have a change of dynasty here. Not just a change of political party, a change of dynasty. How is this usually handled in the world? We gave quotes. We gave historical background quotes. Now, I'm, I'm giving you all this background because we're going to deal with just one word. We're just dealing with one word now in Psalm 57. Don't destroy to get the flavor for what's going on here, we want to know our history. David's behavior differed from the behavior of his contemporaries in that 
his contemporaries, when they wanted to ascend the throne, what did they do to the opposition? Saddam Hussein. Knock him off. Kill them. And not only kill the king, but kill his progeny because of the dynastic idea. I mean, you kill him, and you got to, you know, if the guy's got ten kids, you've got ten potential problems here. So you knock them all off. You don't just kill the king and kill his sons, and if he has grandsons, you kill those too. Take them all out. So that's how the political problem, that was standard procedure. Now, does this give a little bit more flavor why Al Tishkath is there? Don't destroy. It's David, at an early point in his life, he has not yet ascended the throne, who is being warned not to destroy. David is being told, or David, the psalm is characterized as a don't destroy psalm. David knows he is called to the throne. He knows Saul is after him. And he is, he is going to say, no, I am going to trust the Lord to put me on that throne. It is going to be by faith, not by works. I can sit here and I can engineer the politics. I've got the army. I can train the assassination, assassination team and they can go take him out. No problem. But to do that would create a problem in that who gets the glory after it's all done? Obviously, David in his humanity gets the glory. David in his human skills gets the glory. Where's the Lord in all this? Lord was the one that called him to the throne. So David has got a contest here. It's bad enough to have to sit and wait for Saul to get off the throne. It's quite another story when the guy comes after you to kill you. Now you've got a problem. And then it becomes triply bad when you've got your own army with guys that have risked their life for you and you've got a chance to take this guy out and end the threats to their life, and you don't do it. Now, that's the situation politically for David in the middle of this psalm. So what we want to do is look a little bit at the background of what was going on, because it says it's a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Well, that pins it down pretty much to certain passages of the Bible. And we want to turn back to 1 Samuel 24. Because this is when he's in the cave. So let's watch what happens. Amazing story here. And what we want to study is what must have gone through David's thought processes. That's what we want to learn. We want to learn how to handle problems like David did. Not just the Goliath problem, but the Saul problem. See if we can mimic this great believer's mental attitude when he faced problems. That's what we're trying to do here. So let's go back in history to 1 Samuel 24 and understand the situation. Now I have to forewarn you here. The Old Testament is very candid. And... This passage, as well as the one which I hope you will read for next week, by the way, 1 Kings 11 and 12, if you don't read anything else before next Thursday night, please put a little note. Read 1 Kings 11 and 12. But 1 Samuel 24 is going to be one of those passages, and the Hebrew has a delightful, ironic sense of humor here. 
And you watch and see if you can see it. Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. I forgot to bring a map of Israel, but if you have a map of Israel in your Bible, Israel's like this, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, Mediterranean Sea out here, Jerusalem here. Uh, Saul has come back from down in this zone, and he comes across to near the capital Gilgal, because Jerusalem isn't the capital yet, and right here where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, that's where those caves are. So the cave that's mentioned here is the same area of the country, En Gedi, is a place right on the western side of the, of the Sea of uh, Salt Sea, or Great Sea, Dead Sea, and up on this cliff, it's an all brown desert area, you just have this water sitting here, and these mountains rise up on the west side, and up in those mountains, there's caves. And that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Some little shepherd boy was up there in 1947. He was throwing rocks into the cave for jokes. And all of a sudden, instead of the rock going click, 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 it went clunk. And so this little boy said, hmm, why did my rock hit? And he went up there and he found a shattered urn. And he started looking at the urn and here were some scrolls. And that's the exciting story of how in 1947 the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. A very important discovery. So, that's where the wilderness of En Gedi is. It's a desert area that is full of caves. It was the hiding place and the hideout of highway guys, guys who wanted to escape society. It's near the area where John the Baptist preached. And if you've been there, you realize it's nice and quiet. Nobody bothers you because nobody wants to go there. It's just a wilderness area. So, David is hiding up there. Saul, verse 2, took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and he went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. It's a very specific place known apparently the author of Scripture very clearly. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way and there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it seems good to you. And then David rose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. We'll come back to verse 8 in a moment. Now, think of this. Just put this in the historic setting. You talk about getting caught with your pants down. This is the place in the Scripture. Here it is. Here's the king in the most compromised position that you could possibly imagine. And, and this is part of the humor of Scripture. It's all done without making it, you know, silly humor. But there's a divine irony, and we have to enjoy how the Holy Spirit worked here in this situation. There's tremendous irony to this. Of all the caves that he had to pick, it was the cave where, who in the back, but David and trained military guys are sitting there watching this whole thing go on. And you can imagine David's own guys. Hey, now look, got a clear shot here, guys. Let's 
get the guy now. We can kill him and disappear in the innards of the cave. They never know it even happened. They probably don't even know what cave he went into. They'll take all day to find this guy. A beautiful setup. Beautiful setup. In the light of history. Now, here's the thing. David sits in this situation, tailor-made for an assassination against the competing dynasty. If he were to think as a pagan would think, as Sennacherib would have thought, there's no question what David would have done in this situation. Absolutely no question. But David is here, and David has something in his heart, and it's called the Word of God. And that makes a difference in how he manages this situation. And you notice he has to manage his own situation, and he has to manage the guys that are with him. And he has to do it in such a way that is going to lead him to conflict very seriously with the accepted norm and behavior of political people in that time and age. So with that background, let's go now to Psalm 57. Before we're finished tonight, you'll see that Psalm 57 is taken up in our hymn book. And maybe I've ruined the image of the hymn for you, but now when you start singing that hymn again, you'll think of the cave. All right, Psalm 57 now. Psalm 57 is a miktam. That means a kind of song. And we can't get in, because this is not a Bible class on psalms, but psalms have structures to them. And in the last hundred years of church history, there's been enough people study the psalms that they've been able to figure out this, this categories to psalms. And there's a cycle inside these psalms. And if you capture this cycle, you'll see it repeat. Now, it's artistically done, so it's not mechanical. Every psalm is different. But here is the structure of a psalm. Usually in a psalm, you have these elements. I'll list them for you, and when you read Psalm, just look for these kinds of elements. One of the things that you'll find in a Psalm is a description or a lament over some problem. There'll be, so, so we call this the lament section. Also, you'll find a verse or two, usually not more than two verses in any given Psalm that express the promise or the doctrine that the psalmist claimed by faith in the middle of that lament. And it's a very interesting study in the psalms of how these guys thought. And by studying the psalms, you can watch how they, they managed. So there's a lament section. You can usually pick that out because it'll be a description of the, of the problem. Then there will be a confidence section. When you get into the original languages, the verb tenses shift, and there's all kinds of signals for this. Unfortunately, in the English translations, it all doesn't come out. But it's much more powerful in the original languages. There's a confidence section. Then there's usually a couple of petition sections. So you'll have a petition in there. It's a lament, confidence, petition. Then you'll have somewhere, usually a praise section. And the praise is, descri is described two ways. Uh, the scholars that have used this classification call some praise declarative praise, 
and descriptive praise. Now, here's the difference. Declarative praise means I declare what God did in this particular situation. All right? What God did in the particular situation, the specifics, that's declarative praise. Descriptive praise is a generalization of the character of God that led him to do the specific thing in the particular situation. It's a generalization. In other words, after watching God do it 32 times, that he acts this way in this kind of situation, I start generalizing and say, well, then God is a God of love, God is a God of power, God does this, that's all. Those are generals, and that's called descriptive praise. Now, you'll see these five elements in almost every single psalm. And there are patterns to combining these elements. There are certain psalms that are heavy on lament, and they're called the lament psalms. There are psalms that are heavy on descriptive praise. They're called descriptive praise psalms. There are psalms that are heavy on declarative praise. So don't think of all these five elements as equal. Sometimes they expand and the other parts contract. Now, this particular psalm has a structure to it, and we can't go through it verse by verse because we don't have time tonight, but I'm going to go through enough of it so we'll at least see a little bit about how David thinks. But as, as a sort of side note, let me give you the structure of the psalm. Verses 1 to 5, um, which concludes, Be thou exalted above the heavens, O Lord. Let thy glory... Uh, be above the he- uh, let thy glory be above all the earth. Verses 1 to 5 is most of it's emphasizing going to God in the middle of the problem. Just, just quickly scan that with your eye. Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. You see what's going on there? Be gracious to me, O God. Verse 2, I will cry to the God most high. Verse 3, he will send from heaven. Verse 4, my soul is among lions. Verse 5, be thou exalted above the heavens. Now think, what, where's the petition in that? Where do you see him talking to God, asking God to do something? Well, clearly, the petition is looked at in verse 1, be gracious. And if you look, it's not in verse 2, that's describing something, it's not addressed to God. Verse 3 is describing something, not addressed to God. Verse 4 is describing something, not addressed to God. But verse 5 is addressed to God. So it's like a sandwich. There's praise on verse 1, there's praise on verse 5. Okay, now let's characterize verses 2, 3, and 4 that are the meat inside the two pieces of bread. All right, verse 2, 3, and 4. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness. Look at those five elements and see if you can guess. Which of the five elements is that? Verse 3, the confidence section. That's describing the confidence he has in the Lord in the middle of the situation. Um, Verse 2 is sort of he's talking to himself and he's he's getting up courage to trust the Lord, kind of. Verse 4 is what? Of the five elements. It's a description of the problem, so it would be more like the lament. Now, we haven't seen any praise here, have we? So the first five parts of this psalm are heavy into petition and lament. 
Now look, and we'll go through these verses, verse by verse here in a moment, but I just want to get to the flavor for the big thing. So verses 1 to 5 um, come out like this. That section of the psalm tells us the mental attitude that's going on inside David's head. Very instructive. Because the Holy Spirit, who knows David's heart, allows David later to write this out for our edification. So now we know the 1 Samuel 24 situation in the cave. We see the situation David's in, and we want to get inside his head because this guy's a sharp believer. We can learn a lot watching David. So, verses 1 to 5 is, is how he's cycling all this data. This is what's going on. Now let's look at verses 6 through 11. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They have fallen into the midst of it. What's that look like? The lament again, right? It's a description of the situation. Seven. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will wake in the dawn. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to thee among the nations. For thy loving kindness is great to the heavens, thy truth to the clouds. Be thou exalted above the heavens, O Lord. Let thy glory be above the earth. Now, what of the elements does that look like? Praise. Heavy on praise. Verse 9 is praise. Verse 10 is praise. Verse 11 is praise. It's a wish for God's glory to be manifest. So clearly, from verses 6 through 11, the psalm shifts. You see how this shifted? Now watch that. You'll see that again and again in the psalms. The psalms start out taking you through the problem. They take you to exactly the doctrine and the truth the guy used. And then they take you to the resolution. So it's a very insightful thing. What we're allowed to do by studying these psalms is get inside these guys' minds these great believers and how they thought, so it's, we can walk through life holding their hand and saying, okay, take me through that trial, David. I want to watch how you handle it from the inside. Okay, now, 7, 8, 9, and 10 all deal with praise. Um, do you notice anything um, in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 where you see a confidence section repeated at all. Anybody see that? Where he's expressing confidence in something? Yes, verse 7. He is very clear in verse 7 that he has absolute confidence the Lord's going to handle this problem for him. Okay. Now, there's one other little tidbit in verse 6. You've got to look at it carefully and go through each one of the lines and see if you don't notice something different between verse 6 and verse 4. Remember we said both of those are laments. Verse 6 and verse 4. Verse 4 is a lament in the sense it describes the problem. Verse 6 starts out looking like it's doing the same thing, but what happens at the end of verse 6? That's a prophecy of something, isn't it? What tense verb? What verb tense is that? Past, present, or future? 
it's past. They have fallen into the midst of it. So therefore, is verse 6 looking at the problem before resolution or looking at the problem after resolution? It's looking at the problem after it's been solved. So the section, and this is, this is typical, the praise sections of the Psalms will look at the situation after God solved it. And that's why they're praising God. Now here's the tricky part. Sometimes the confidence is so powerful in the heart of these believers that they can absent themselves from the situation, get out of the situation, and look at the situation as though it's already been resolved, even though it hasn't been in reality. And when you see that, and there are several Psalms that do that, that tells you how powerful these guys were up here. It shows you what kind of a mental attitude. You talk about tough people. People like David in these kinds of situations, they, they, they accomplish these great things for God because on the inside they have that amazing confidence. They could even visualize it in their mind as a something that has already passed. So, problem's already over, even though it wasn't over. And God, they had a grip on the mind of God that was that powerful. Okay, let's go back to verse 1 and go through this and, and study how David handles it. And watch what truths come in here. Because now we want to go verse by verse, and we'll only have time tonight to just kind of whet our appetites in this psalm. But let's start with verse 1. Let's look at what sort of truths, what kind of doctrines about God is David using here. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in thee. In the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Well, first line, be gracious, be gracious. We've gone through the events from creation, fall, flood, covenant, and going through all these doctrines. Why does he ask God to be gracious? What does that immediately tell you where David's coming from in the situation? Does he merit this? No. He immediately puts himself in absolute humility before the Lord, realizing he is a sinner. And that prevents, you see, because he can see, be gracious to me, O God, that is one of the secrets of why he didn't get so self-righteous and say, well, I'm so much better than Saul. God has to kill Saul because I'm so great. See, David, didn't, it's not part of his attitude. It doesn't even figure into the equation. He starts right out on a grace basis. He says, my relationship with the Lord is based from beginning to end on his grace. And that means it's not some merit that I have in my heart, that I'm such a great and wonderful person that God just has to open the pearly gates for me. I'm coming. Okay, God, get ready. None of that in here. Just be gracious. Be gracious to me. And it says, for my soul takes refuge in the shadow of thy wings. Now, we won't do this, but when you see an expression, the shadow of thy wings, and you have something called a concordance, uh, try looking that one up and seeing where it first happens in the scriptures. Or when you look at a concordance, or look at expressions and find out when it was first used. Now, think about what we have learned about in our history on these Thursday nights. I want to take you where this expression is first used. Hold the place and turn to Deuteronomy 32.
Now, where did David get all this truth from? Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, etc., etc. That's a picture of God's grace toward who? What did we study a year ago, Thursday nights? We got into Deuteronomy, we got into the giving of the law, and I said... There was what that had to be taught to the nation? The national anthem. Remember? The national anthem that was given to Israel was Deuteronomy 32. Now, our national anthem depicts what happened in Baltimore Harbor in an actual historic event. Most people are too embarrassed to sing the second and third stanzas, but they really are neat. Psalm, uh, Deuteronomy 32 is the national anthem of Israel, and it does our national anthem one better. Our national anthem looks back to what happened at Fort McHenry. The Deuteronomy 32 looks back, and it looks forward into history to the future ultimate consummation of the history of Israel. And it gives confidence that the nation of Israel is not going to evaporate, disappear from history. It has a destiny. Now, in the middle of all that, verse 11 is a revelation of the nature of God in analogy with an eagle caring for its young. And the eagle was looked upon as, as a great bird of prey, a strong, strong shelter. So, it's a picture in verse 11 of a mother or a father eagle covering up its young. Now, does anybody, just a side note here, this metaphor of God spreading its wings to protect its young occurs again several times in the Bible. Can anybody remember prominently where Jesus used this? One point in Jesus' life, he mentioned the same metaphor. It was toward the end of his life. After Jerusalem, he walked in, came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the crowds began to turn against him. And he knew he was going to go to the cross, and he looked back at the walls of Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, like a mother hen, I would gather the young, but you would not. That shows you a feature that is consistently depicted from Deuteronomy 32 all the way through the Gospels. God is pictured as a mother bird caring for its young. There's something in the biological behavior of the structure of that animal behavior that is deliberately designed in to reveal something about our God in heaven. Okay, so where did David get the metaphor? He got it from the national anthem. So, ah, let's go back to Psalm 57. Not a mystery now. These, these words and these psalms are all things that the guy learned in various places. So he learns to come to God on the basis of grace. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in thee. In the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Do you notice that confidence there? That he doesn't, he's not going to have to take refuge for much longer because he has this confidence that the destruction will pass. Where is he getting that from? Who's sovereign? 
What does David have in his God that the pagans don't have in their gods? Let's go back to that diagram, that basic diagram. Remember, we've got to live as, as David would have back in those days. Now, the, 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 the pagan has this idea of continuity of being. He has gods that are finite and limited. If he puts his trust in God B, how does he know what's going to happen next week in the Council of the Gods? Who's going to be chairman next week? God F. What happens to God B? I trusted him yet last week. So that's why, remember when we had that quote from Sennacherib, and I deliberately put it in the notes, I had him quoting how many gods and goddesses? You remember that statement? He was praying to this god, that god, all the gods. Why? Covering his bases. He didn't know who's going to be in charge next week. Because the pagans have ignorance, ultimately underlying them, because they have no word of God. There's no Bible that Ishtar wrote, Venus wrote, Jupiter wrote. Any of those gods or goddesses write a Bible? No. Because none of them talk. So the pagan ultimately is dumb. He is ignorant. He, he, he faces silence there. Okay, now David, he believes in the creative creature. Distinction. He knows that there's a creator who's omniscient. He knows that God is all-powerful. He knows that God is sovereign. So, destruction will pass him by. Now, in verse 2, he quotes a name for God. This is not a Jewish name. And that should, you should be sensitive to this. God Most High is unusual for a Jew to address God that way. Now, this is striking. Why doesn't he call him Yahweh? You know? But why God Most High? That is a pagan Gentile name. That's the name Melchizedek used. Oh, Melchizedek used it. And who was Melchizedek? Melchizedek was the last of the king priests before the baton was handed over to Abraham. And what does David's kingship mirror? He is to be a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, preparing himself for the ultimate Jesus Christ. So he is using Melchizedekian language to describe God, Genesis 14. So now we know shadow of thy wings is from Deuteronomy 32. We know that Most High God is a title from Genesis 14. He says, He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. And there's a whole bunch of studies and all those words. But I want to single out two words. Why don't he single out the word translated loving kindness and truth? Because those appear frequently. You can't read the Psalms without understanding these two words. They're very critical to understand vocabulary-wise. Loving kindness is an expression, or it's, a, it's an adjective, that describes covenant loyalty. Implicit in the word loving kindness is a covenant of some sort. Now, does that ring a bell? Well, yeah. The Davidic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. These guys all thought in terms of those contracts. See how powerful that contractual way of thinking is? When they got themselves in a jam... They, had, they went back, apparently, in their hearts, whose 
contract is involved here. Now, I got the paperwork, and it's all signed. And they went back to the paperwork. They went back to the contract. And that's where this loving kindness. The loving kindness is always used in terms of some sort of covenant. That's why it's used for marital love. It is not used when two young people fall in love. That is another word, aha, because there's not yet a covenant established. And the vocabulary shifts to kezit when there's a, there's a covenant. So loving kindness has covenant in the background. And truth, the idea of truth there is the picture of strength and stability. Remember immutability? God is mutable. He doesn't change. God is all-powerful. The word kind of encapsulates all those attributes sort of in like one package. Didn't we? Well, this is the confidence that he, and this is where the confidence is coming from. What he is doing here is he's taking all that information about the covenant, about God being keeping covenant, about God who is sovereign, God is who omnipotent, God who is omniscient, God who is eternal, God who is loving, God who is holy, all that wrapped up in these words. That's why he's able to do what he's going to do in this cave. My soul, verse 4, is a description of what happens. And you'll notice how he generalizes it. It's not just Saul. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Now, knowing what you know of 1 Samuel 24, what do you suppose he's talking about there? Do you suppose he could possibly be including some of his own people? Just, a, you know, just a thought. We can't be dogmatic here, but... Uh, the guy, he's supposed to be leader here. And he's got to lead in the nation. One group is out to kill him. The other group's out to kill that group. So it's kind of isolating for David now. He, you know, he's the lone guy. So he says, my soul is among the lions. And the word lions is often used of warriors. That's why that same imagery is taken over in First Peter and applied to who? A roaring lion seeking whom you devour. It's play of Satan. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. I have to sleep with people who breathe forth fire. The sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue is sharp. So you notice the emphasis in verse 4 on speech? Watch how often in the Psalms David is complaining about gossip and maligning and criticism. Speech. Now, here's a guy that went out there, warrior. I mean, I could show you passages in the Old Testament of Samuel uh, of him coming back from battle. I mean, you think Saul relieving himself in the cave is a problem. You ought to see what it says in the Hebrew about what David did when he came back from the battlefield. Someday we'll teach 1 Samuel. <laughs> um, but the point is, it's very, very picturesque what's going on here. And yet, in all that violence of the battlefield, the thing that bothered David the most was people running off at the mouth. And I think we all see that. What does the most damage to a group? It's this maligning and criticism and gossip and everything else that goes on. And it ruins people's reputation. It ruins communication. It ruins fellowship. And so there's warnings in the scriptures about using our mouth. Now in verse 5, he ends with an appeal, it's sort of like a preliminary praise, but it's in the form of a petition. And that, in our hymn book, is hymn five. 
Hymn number five in our red hymn book is verse five, just set to music. But it's set to music outside of the context of verse 57. Be exalted above heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Now, what does that tell you in context of verse four? See what he's doing? In verse four, he's analyzed the problem. He's so thought about the problem that he perceives there's no way I can solve this problem because it's the sons of men. It's inherent fallen human nature. So there's not going to be any redeeming work here. God has to do it. And so that's why he says, let there be a testimony for God. And that's one of the things that is involved in praise. Who gets the credit? After all is said and done, in the final analysis, who gets the bulk of the credit here. And David is controlling him and his men in that cave when they could so easily, within feet, a few more feet and a sword and a knife, would have taken out his problem. And you can just see these guys saying, let me go get him now. Come on, he's almost finished. He's only got a few minutes to do this thing. And these guys, they're professional killers. That's what their job is. They're trained to do that. That's their warrior group. He trained them all the way from the, another cave called the Cave of Adullam. David has trained these guys. And they're just chomping at the bit to do this. And he says, no, do not destroy. Do not destroy. What do you mean don't destroy? Come on, David. If we let this guy get out here, we're going to be ki- killed someday in battle. Don't you have any consideration for us? I mean, we're trying to help you, foul. And so, pressure's on David from his own people. But David isn't thinking about his own people. He isn't thinking about Saul. Verse 5 tells you where this man's heart is. He is thinking about who gets the credit. God has called me to this dynasty. If the dynasty is ever to get going in history, God will have to put me on the throne. No one else. Not my wisdom. Not my political gimmicks. Not all my negotiations. God is going to have to do it. And God will get the credit. And God did. Now, the rest of it, of course, is the declaration of praise. And this is the looking back at it. Verse 6. And you come now to this past tense in verse 6. Because here is where you you start to pick up the flavor. the, The crisis is over. Verses 1 to 5 analyze what, he was, what was going on in his mind. Now, whether verse 6 through 10, 11 went on in his mind at that time or whether verses 6 through 11 tell you what he was thinking after the whole thing was resolved, we don't know. They have prepared a net for my steps. This is all the plotting with Saul and his men. My soul is bowed down. And you'll notice when it says my soul is bowed down, he's admitting that he's depressed. He's not going, you know, I got the joy, joy, joy business. Not quite like that. He is depressed. He's feeling the pressure. This goes on day after day after day. He's got to sustain this group of guys out in the caves of this En Gedi wilderness. Now, you can imagine the food problem. Just think about this for a minute. Got a little practical problem here. We can get food and water out in that group. So they have foraging. They must have had to go out on search missions to get their food every single day. All kinds of problems. Just the logistics problems alone. No wonder he felt bowed down. 
They dug a pit before me, and they have fallen into the midst of it. Now, knowing what was going on in the cave, do you see where that metaphor came from? You see? There's an irony to this. They literally have tried to set David up in the wilderness of Engedi, surround him, and destroy him. And what he's saying, God, they've set a pit, and they're the ones who are going to fall into it. And this guy's on a pit right now. So you have to read this with a background in mind to get the full flavor of what's happening here. There's irony in all this. There's a tremendous sense of the sovereignty of God. What did God accomplish? He brought Saul within a few feet of David. Now, we're going to see what the response is in a moment. He speaks, they have fallen into the midst of it. Now, in verse 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, is this tremendous confidence. My heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. Now, what did he say in verse 6? My soul is bowed down. But my heart is steadfast. There's a difference. You can be depressed and still believe. You see? You can still believe that these are promises. Now, it may not work out always to put a smile on your face. But deep down at your deepest level, even though it hurts up in the upper levels, at the deep levels, the foundation levels, you're not really disturbed. Your feet are on the ground. It smarts and stings a little bit up here. But down in the depths of your heart, your feet are solidly planted. And I think we've all been in that situation. That's where he is. My heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. And now he says, I'm going to sing. And when he says in verse 8, he, he's asking his... He's talking to himself. Awake, my glory. My glory is usually used synonymously of soul. And he says, awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. What was, his ta- what was one of his talents? Music. It was a method of expressing his thankfulness to God. I will give thanks to thee. And notice, not just personally. Who was he giving thanks before? I will give thanks to thee, verse 9, among the peoples. I will sing praises to thee among the nations. Now, how did David sing praises literally among the nations? What are we reading here? What book of the Bible? Psalms. Has he given praise before the nations? Yeah, because the book of Psalms got published among the nations. Plus the fact... In his own career, he probably shared this with other kings. Don't think while he was reigning in Jerusalem, he didn't have business deals. He, he, we know he talked to Hiram of Tyre because that's how Solomon knew how to get the cedar for the temple. So David probably talked many times, and these kings would share stories of how they got to the throne. Well, David, how did you get to the throne? And that was his opportunity to give a testimony. These other kings would say, well, I killed uh, so-and-so, and I killed this guy, and boy, I wiped out his family. David, how how many families did you wipe out? None. You're nuts. You didn't kill your opponents? No, I didn't kill. Well, why not? Because I have a God in heaven, that's why. And I don't have to take care of those kind of things because he takes care of them for me. See, it was an opportunity to give testimony. So David gives testimony to the truth. Now let's conclude by turning back to what happened at the end of that incident in 1 Samuel to see what kind of a victory God really gave to David. Something stunning happened here. David, as we read before, came up, cut a garment off of Saul. After Saul went out to the cave, David said uh, in verse 10, 9, 10, 11, he said, look, he went out into the open. He said, Saul, I'm here. Look. 
and he held up this piece that he had cut off his garment. You know, I was here. And you can imagine Saul knows very well if David got close enough to cut this off, he got cut close enough to chop his head off or stab him, didn't he? So it was living evidence that David wasn't just bluffing. And it goes on and describes the dialogue, amazing dialogue, verse 11, 12, 13, 14. Now verse 16, here's the result. Here's the end of the scene. It came about when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul was a very emotional person, very unstable kind of person, floats around spiritually, but he was emotional. And he said, by the way, shows you therefore that emotion and Holy Spirit working doesn't necessarily coincide. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. See, it led to a confession of sin. And you have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. And now the amazing thing in verse 20 and 21. Watch this one. Keep the history and background in mind. Keep your history in mind. What is the big picture? Dynastic succession. That's what's going on here. Who is going to control the throne of Israel? Now, here's the guy that's on the throne who has all power. And what does he say in verse 20 and 21 as a result of this? Now behold, I know that you not only will be king, but you surely will be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So now, look at this, look at verse 21. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And guess what the verb destroy is? The title of the song, El Tishketh. Don't destroy my seed. So what's the object of the verb destroy? The old dynasty. And why not destroy it? Because God is in control. It is not man's prerogative. It is God's prerogative. It is the word of God that's going to establish this thing. And I'm going to trust the Lord to do this. So here we have an eloquent portrayal tonight of the behavior for about 30 minutes. Probably this whole thing was start and stopped in 30 minutes a snapshot of one of the great believers of all times and how he managed adversity, trial, and pressure. And how he came out of it, and then in verse 20 and 21, what he accomplished by it. See, he could have killed Saul, but what would that have done? It would have hardened the people who were the Saulites. It would have hardened them. He would have to fight all of them. But by having Saul himself in verse 20 and 21 admit now that, yeah, my dynasty is finished, and the destiny of my sons rests on you. What is he? He's defeated. Who's defeated here? Saul's defeated. And he was defeated without even being touched with a knife. The reason is because David used another sword. The sword of the word of God. It is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. David has an amazing story here of a guy, a king, a messianic leader who operated with all the covenant knowledge, all the govern uh, knowledge of the attributes of God. And now we're going to watch, sadly, next Thursday night, to one of the all-time ignoramuses on the throne called Rehoboam. And watch what this guy does. And I want you to keep David in mind as you uh, use him as a reflector.
as we start studying these other guys. It's going to be a study in what we call in, in uh, the actual area of doctrine that's it's called, has a name, it's called harmardiology. H-A-M, harmardiology. Harmardiology is a study of sin. And that's what we're going to be studying. Harmardiology and sanctification. Harmardiology and sanctification. Over and over. That's the story of the next few Thursday nights. And it's, it's great, because we need to know that. Father, we thank you for these stories that you've preserved out of David's life. We thank you that you have worked in this man's life in such a phenomenal way that he becomes such a great model for us. We can see here in living flesh a man who faced a real problem, a real situation that really was tied up with his entire career, the, meaning of his, the very meaning of his life. And at that point, he chose to go with the Word of God and to forsake human gimmicks and human solutions and to place his trust completely in you. Thank you, God, for giving us this example and recall it to our hearts when we need it. In Christ's name, amen. not have to be around too late tonight. Um, are there any questions on uh, what we've done as far as the history up to this point? Because as I say, we're going to go pretty fast through an awful lot of history now in the next few chapters because we've got to cover everything from 930 BC to, we've got to cover 200 years of history. And it involves political intrigues. And if you're new to the Bible, this could be very confusing for you because if you don't know kings and who did what under whose reign, it can get kind of, you know, uh, confusing. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm trying to go through passages of Scripture. Like next week, I'd like to go through 1 Kings 11 and 12 and just go through the passage. So if you haven't gone through there and it's new to you, by the time we get through next week, it won't be new to you because that's a critical section. So we won't attempt to go through every single chapter. We're just, because of the time, we're just going to take segments like this, through a certain key chapters of the Old Testament. So, any questions? I didn't intend to. I know what you. I think I know what you're talking about. Uh, you get it in the radio and books and stuff. Um, the problem with that approach is that you're fooling yourself, and ultimately it's deception because only the Holy Spirit can give you that confidence. We're talking true truth here. And frankly, I think we're better off um, being somewhat skeptical about things until the Holy Spirit opens our hearts. And it, the analogy would be before you became a Christian. Now, you, you might have been around Christians, you know, peer pressure, and you might have felt, well, I believe in Jesus. I mean, I, I, before I became a Christian, I thought I believed in Jesus too, but I, if you asked me what was the content of my belief, I'd be like this. Couldn't tell you. But... 
I could have tried to work something up, but that's all stuff that you work up. Real truth, like we all know, someday the Lord opened your heart and you trust the Lord. Now, you didn't do that. You didn't sit there and work it up. Well, it's the same thing. You don't sit and work that kind of stuff up. When those psalmists experienced that confidence, I'm sure they would have told us, if we could interview them, that, oh, well, that, the Holy Spirit just gave me. The Lord just opened my heart to that truth. I couldn't, and that's why you don't always observe it. It is not true that that's done in every psalm. It's not standard procedure. I just pointed out to, just so we can be on the look for it. And, and, it, and it does show that, and, and somewhat, some people have argued, by the way, that a spirit, that they had a prophetic spirit, um, in that they could actually visualize, the Lord might have taken them to visualize this in a way that he doesn't to us, for example. Because after all, we're talking here about people who write scripture. So special situations might have applied to them that don't to us. But the main problem, the main principle in what we're seeing here is always look for the confidence section when you read a psalm. Look for a confidence section. Because that will cue you as to what was going on in their heads about God. That'll tell you what the battle was. And I, I think that's a discipline we want to get. Because I always, I always am intrigued by how do they handle that? I want to know, how did they handle that? What were you thinking when you acted that way? And that's why those confidence sections inside this text are so critical. But it's like tonight, when that past tense occurred, the, the visualization is that they've fallen into the pit. And it's not like I commanded them to fall into the pit. I claimed it to fall in the pit. It's much more almost like passive. Uh, they did this to me, and they're fall they've fallen into the pit. He, he can see it happen. And like I say, I don't think we know in Psalm 57 whether that happened prior to or after. And it's hard to tell. Yeah. But there's an that you can use it oppositely, though. You know, Donna, you can use this in another way backwards. Instead of using it, name it and claim it. There's another way I found useful, and that is when I'm not trusting the Lord. The problem is usually when I'm not trusting the Lord, I'm distracted from not trusting the Lord, and so I'm not even conscious I'm not trusting the Lord. So that's what the problem is, because sin is so deceptive. So, you know, when when circumstances hit me over the head or my wife hits me over the head, or something like that, and I, I realize, well, I'm not trusting the Lord in this situation. When you first become aware that you're not trusting the Lord in the situation, a good question and discipline to do is say to yourself, now, wait a minute, I'm not neutral, so what am I trusting in? And then when you start asking yourself, what kind of a God image am I having that leads me to behave this way? It's great, because all of a sudden it grabs all the crud in your thought patterns and pulls it out for examination. You say, man, I have accepted a pagan premise here. God really isn't in control. Because I have to believe something. At all times, I'm operating on one presupposition or I'm operating on the other. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, I mean, to me, it sounds like he's just, he's just 
spontaneous? You're saying a spontaneous? Oh, okay. Well, I'm sure he wrote the song. Well, yeah, most declare, obviously praise is after the fact. It's just that in some cases, there's a prophetic element in these psalms. It's, um, I can't think of a good example, unfortunately, now, but um, there are those cases where this thing happens, and you know from the context that he's still in the middle of the problem. And he has this, he has this ability to see it, but it's not always there. Now, Psalm 57, probably you're right. Probably all these, oh, all of them were written after the fact. The question is, when they wrote them after the fact, when David sat there and either dictated it to somebody, the scribe, who wrote it down, is he telling the scribe that, gee, thinking back on that cave incident, this is what God was praised, or is he saying to the scribe who's writing it down, oh, let me tell you what I was thinking when I did that. See, and it's hard to say because we don't know the, the, how these psalms are composed. I guess the confidence part of it is that, that God is going to deliver, even though I'm in this pit, God is going to deliver. Um, and that he's going to deliver in No, no. And it's confidence even specifically more than that. And that's what I wanted to get into when I showed you the, the eagle the metaphor of the eagle and how he used kezid, the word for loving kindness. I brought those two up because I wanted to show that David had more... He, he, he knew God well enough to know he was omnipotent, he's omniscient and so forth, and he surely did trust that way. But the very fact that he's using those words and those metaphors that are anchored to covenants tells you that he was standing on those covenants, even though he doesn't say, I believe in the Davidic covenant. I mean, he doesn't have to say that to tell us that that's in fact what he's doing. Oh, yeah. That's right. And we have to realize that the presence of depression and fear is not always a sign we're out of fellowship. Because if it is we got a problem with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if Jesus was sinless and he is so upset by what's going to happen that, his, that he's rupturing capillaries in his forehead, I beg to differ with some people. He wasn't just sitting back and laming it and claiming it. Not in that situation he wasn't. Well, then what are we going to say? Jesus was out of fellowship in the Garden of Gethsemane? Clearly not. So then that shows you that there's, you can be in faith and still be working through all kinds of emotions. It's, it's who wins. Does the emotional pattern totally overwhelm you? Or finally, is there a spiritual control where the human spirit is not ultimately going to be subdued by the fleshy emotions? Yeah. Go ahead. That's, 
Yeah. And then David saying, well, why are you, know, what? Like, why are you pursuing me again? And then David, um, Saul apologizes again in a sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, that Saul is all over the board. He is, he's a double-minded man, and he's all over the board. And this is why it's caused at no end to Bible scholars, because over the years, people have asked the question, was Saul a believer? Well, we had the discussion. Remember one night about the Holy Spirit leaving Saul and so on? And, and people, you, you can hardly tell this guy. I mean, at times, he really looks like a genuine believer. And then at other times, he blows it. I personally think he was a believer. I think he, just, he had all kinds of disobedience problems, and God thrashed him. And finally, God killed him. And we, we have to recognize that all believers don't... The end of every believer's life is not always a happy story. And we've got a little deception going on in our own evangelical circles about that. That as people go around and say, well, Solomon couldn't have been a believer because he didn't, he didn't last. Well, I beg your pardon. But Solomon was a believer. Now, he tubed out at the end of his life. Did he lose his salvation? No, he didn't lose his salvation. Point is, 2 Samuel 7 says, he who disobeys will be chastened with a rod of men. Who's doing the chastening? The men? No. Behind it, there's an unseen hand that's doing the chastening. So, the fact that, like in 1 Corinthians 11, we read it every communion service here, many are sick and weakly and many sleep. Well, it's clearly saying that the Lord kills people. Believers. He didn't bother the unbelievers. It's the believers. Um, so you find believers in jail. You find believers in the funny farm. You find believers, in, you know, sick when they shouldn't be. I mean, we're a mess. We're all sheep. Stupid sheep. So, you know, that's why David is so good to me because he gets involved by everything we can get involved in. And yet he comes out smelling like a rose. And it's just because... David was doing things in his life that the other guys didn't do. David would get out of it, but somehow David's heart was sensitive and the Holy Spirit came to him and he responded and he got back on the track. And he had a whole lot of glop to deal with, but he got back on the track. And then you see somebody like Solomon, you say, for crying out loud, what happened to this guy? And he had everything going for him and he wipes out. And then we're going to see some real ripping cases as we go on in, in the first kings. I mean, some of those guys, you want, where did these guys come from? What planet are they on? And were they believers? Probably, yeah. And that's why I want to go through that history, because I want us to see what crummy, messy lives these guys had. Not because we want to lead crummy, messy lives, because these guys paid for it. They suffered for it. When God calls a nation to a destiny and the people don't respond to what he called them to, he's going to get out the whip. And that's what's happening here. God says, I'm going to chasten with a rod of men, and boy, he chastens with a rod of men for 300 years. Nine, the, the chapter, 1 Kings 11, is um, 9.30. So you can kind of get that date in your head. The, the big dates are 2000... Abraham, 1,400 the Exodus, 1,000 David. Now we're going to go from 1,000 to 500 uh, uh, this spring. Now, the revolution, the civil war, happens in 930, 931. And then from 930 to 720, is that this is how long the northern kingdom lasts. And in 721, the Assyrians come in and they take it out. So 10 of the 12 tribes are totally shot in 721. 
the southern kingdom goes on to 586, and they're taken out by the Babylonians. So now you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom terminated in history. And that leads to the exile and leads to so on. But the neat thing is that while all this horror story is going on that we're going to look at, there arises in Israel a new class of people. And these are the people that write practically the whole center part of the Old Testament. And they're called the classical writing prophets. And we want to look at those classical writing prophets because liberals who criticize the scriptures have always insisted that the classical prophets were reformers. This is the liberal idea, that they were reformers. They came to reform the nation and do these things. We went through the, the treaty back last year. And I remember I showed you the cursings and the blessings. What we're going to see is that when the classical writing prophets start doing their business, I mean Isaiah, Jeremiah, the big guys, when they start doing their business and they start writing, they start ministering the nation, they are not reforming the nation. They are prosecuting attorneys that are going back to particular parts of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers, taking those scriptures and taking them centuries later and applying them to their society. And they're convicting the nation for violation of these particular parts of the treaty. There's no reformation, there's no reform, there's no social agendas there. It's, a, it's the prosecuting attorneys that are coming up and convicting the nation and explaining, you are suffering because you violated this point, this point, this point, and this point. And that's what those cries of the prophets are all about. It's not saying you're sinners. Well, they are sinners. But it's far more specific than that. It, it's covenantal. So that's what we want to see is the structures that go on here. And tonight, even though the word covenant isn't in Psalm 57, the imagery is there. David is functioning in the light of the covenants. So watch what happens next week in 1 Kings 11 and 12. That's kind of neat. Anybody got any other questions? Okay. Have a good week.